You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we chatted with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Then we spoke with Professor Adrian Stone at the Melbourne Law School, and we talked about the four-day summit in Uluru and the proposals that are currently being considered by delegates in terms of the constitutional recognition of Australia's first peoples. Then we had Warwick Smith join us in the studio. Warwick is a research economist at Per Capita, and we discussed the history of unemployment policy in Australia. Then finally, we had a chat with Dr Jack Pascoe, Conservation and Research Manager at the Cape Otway Conservation and Ecology Centre. And Jack told us about his work to save the koalas, the managums and the tiger quolls along the Great Ocean Road. And you're tuned in to 3RRRFM, the show being Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I have with me in the studio, Mr. Ben Eltham, who is a National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Hi, Good morning, ben. Amy. How are you? Oh, not bad. You know, just like one of those other Melburnians or half the population who has a head cold. So yeah. apologies to everyone. Well done, mate. Fighting it off. I am. I'm a trooper. I'm, I'm pushing through. Soldier I, on, Amy. Soldier indeed. on. Indeed. I don't have man flu, just um, a woman <laughs> cold. So... <laughs> I'm tough. <laughs> I have confidence. I have confidence. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for that, Ben. I appreciate it. Um, so I'm ready and raring to go for federal politics chat right now because there's just um, a few things simmering along. Uh, one in particular is this bank levy or tax whatever language you'd like to use. Um, there's a development overnight. Uh, we've seen a few of the banks come out, particularly uh, Westpac was the first to come out and say that actually the revenue that's predicted to come in um, for the government, it was around $6 billion of revenue, is likely to be understated because this levy will be a tax deduction for the big banks. What, um, you know, is going on here, Ben? Well, yeah, so apparently what's happened is that uh, Scott Morrison has been able to meet with the big banks and he's then given them the details of how the bank levy will be constructed and on the basis of that they've started to, you know, get their spreadsheets out and do their calculations. And, yes, the news has broken overnight that the government will be allowing the banks to basically make this levy tax deductible. So they'll be able to offset it to some degree on the tax they're already paying. So obviously that means that the bank tax will be less than what the government says it will be. And it's a very strange decision because I would have thought if the point is to raise money by socking the banks, then you'd want to make sure that the banks can't wriggle out of it through technicality. Well, it certainly takes the wind out of their sails in terms of that hardline rhetoric that they've been going on about. I mean, this there is a huge difference. They say that the gross impact for Westpac would be $370 million a year, but actually after tax, it would be a net $260 million. So that's pretty significantly lower. Well, $100 million here, $100 million there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money, aren't you? You are. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, this it just shows just how big these big banks are. I mean, yeah. the four big banks plus Macquarie uh, have over $100 billion in liabilities, all of them, um, and they have, you know, just so much uh, market power, as we know, you know, the fact that the four big banks control 80% of the Australian domestic market mm. shows you that, yeah, they do have a, an incredible amount of 
you know, vested interest. Uh, they are too big to fail. Everyone agrees on that. The government will have to bail out any of those banks that get into trouble. Uh, and so they enjoy a tremendous advantage over pretty much every other business in the country. Hugely. Well, we were discussing this last week and saying how they have a guarantee um, that really no other business has from the government. And, um, and they say, they've come out and said, well, of course, we're not going to absorb this and it just won't impact us in some way. Why should it impact customers instead of, say, shareholders, Ben? Well, I think shareholders will take a hit, you know, like there'll be less profit. But I think the majority of the cost will be passed on to customers for the obvious reason that they can do it. (laughs) They can pass it on because uh, there's not very much competition in the Australian market. Uh, Again, for this reason that we've allowed four dominant players to control pretty much the entire market. We have. And um, in terms of this, uh, Bill Shorten is not, um, you know, he's, he's, laying down an attack or he did so in question time yesterday but it was really just around this discrepancy in their budget numbers uh he actually supports in principle this bank tax or levy um naturally because it would be hugely unpopular to go against it presumably it it is a popular policy among the the australian populace and why wouldn't it be but what do you think um it should be labor's tactic or will is it at the moment in terms of um this budget and the types of um arguments that they're putting forward to undermine it so Labor's tried to take a nuanced position on this budget and has supported some of the measures that the government's put forward and it's opposing others. And perhaps the most sort of controversial one of those is Labor's decided that in terms of the increase to the Medicare levy, which the government wants to increase it across the board for everyone in order to pay for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, Labor wants to um, only increase it for the top two tax brackets. So for people earning $87,000 and above, Um, And Labor claims, and I think fairly accurately here, that that is a more progressive measure so that that will um, be, uh, you know, will be less unequal than essentially a flat tax, which is what the Medicare levy is. It it taxes everyone all the way down to the tax-free threshold. So that's sort of Labor's position. And um, there was some talk in the media yesterday that, you know, certain Labor people actually want to just go the whole hog and and tax everyone with the increased Medicare levy. Uh, But I'm not picking up a huge amount of disunity really there. I think it's it's actually pretty consistent with the rest of Labor's policies. Yeah, there's, there is a bit of an overblown disunity in terms of the reporting of this in the media, particularly between Anthony Albanese and Bill Shorten. And we've seen that kind of little spot fire come up. But it's really um, a distraction, isn't it, from the arguments that we're, we're currently having around policy? Yeah, it is a distraction, I think. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of factional manoeuvring going on, as always, inside Labor, and we're seeing the left factions of Labor flex their muscles in recent months. They're on the verge of taking over Labor in terms of the national conference, so it's quite close in terms of the numbers, in terms of the right versus the left. Mm. Of course, uh, Bill Shorten is on the right, and Chris Bowen, the shadow treasurer, is on the right too, so the right still control the key positions, uh, but the left is certainly much more powerful inside the Labor Party than it's been for some 
sometime. Well, that is interesting um, because, as we know, Julia Gillard was on the left, um, but she... Nominally. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, But (coughs) one of the things um, that I find interesting is that when this budget was termed Labor Light, I think it uh, scared a few progressive um, left people in the Labor Party because how on earth could this be um, a Labor budget? Some people, such as Wayne Swan, would suggest that uh, we should be more progressive and uh, that this couldn't be further from a a Labor budget. But is there that jostling, do you think, around um, progressive Labor and the the more centre Labor? I think there is, and there's definitely some people within Labor that would like to drag Chris Bowen, for example, to the left on some of his policies. Uh, I think that that's being a little bit unfair to Bowen, who's actually put forward a range of pretty courageous policy decisions over the last couple of years. If you look at what Labor's uh, tried, well, in fact, what Labor took to the election on property with negative gearing and the capital gains tax uh, exemption, they tried to reduce the big CGT tax break. Um, So, you know, Labor's definitely walking in that progressive more equal direction you know they're trying to they're trying to change labor's policies to make them or to return labor to a more social democratic kind of party Um, and the polls seem to back that up you know it seems as though the majority of australians support these kind of social democratic policies and perhaps that's why the federal government has decided to pivot towards the center with the 2017 budget Mm, it is interesting because we've watched primary votes decline for both parties and it's about time actually that they respond to that because i seem it seems that they've been floundering for quite a while with that yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the decline of the major parties now, that the two major parties are now getting less than 70% of the total vote between the two of them, which is the lowest it's been for decades and decades. So we've seen the rise of minor parties like the Greens, uh, like One Nation, uh, on both the left and the right. And, and so the major parties are threatened, I think, uh, on both of their flanks on policy issues. Indeed. And... Um Ben, something very exciting is happening this week. Uh, It's Senate estimates time. And that's the time when we get to hear some truth um, and honesty. (laughs) It's very exciting. Oh, yes. Uncover some facts. It's always an exciting time for politics nerds like me, Senate estimates. um, And, you know, there's lots of things to be talking about. Um, And so yesterday we had a very interesting Senate estimates hearing with the Department of Immigration. Always an important moment to get a little bit of accountability in that most opaque of politics portfolios. Indeed. And we have actually uncovered something um, under questioning Immigration Department Secretary uh, Mike Pezzullo um, basically told that hearing that uh, in fact nine people were injured uh, on Good Friday at the Manus Island Detention Centre um, when there was shooting into the compound by a PNG military. Initially and for up until yesterday, um, we were told that no one was injured actually. And it's amazing to think, Ben, that these basic facts around, you know, zero people getting harmed or nine people actually being harmed could take so long to actually come out and and that it did come out through Senate estimates. What's going on there? Well, once again, we're just seeing this sort of uh, blanket news ban really being imposed on on these very, very significant, important events happening in Australia's offshore detention centres. Absolutely. I mean, what we saw in in that incident on Good Friday was that 
uh, the detention centre was shot up by PNG Navy personnel. I mean, it's as simple as that. They fired machine guns into the camp. And, yeah, there were significant injuries, a terrifying event if you think about it, and one that shows the bankruptcies of Australian immigration policy, particularly in PNG, where the PNG Supreme Court has ruled that this camp is illegal and it will be closed. So, I mean, it's a disaster waiting to happen, I think, and um, the government you know, not for the first time, has tried to cover it up. And mm-hmm. so we've we've got a little bit more information coming out at estimates. But the, the other thing that, that it tells you is that Immigration Minister Peter Dutton has been misleading the Australian public and I, I think quite openly lying about these matters, actually. Well, we need to bring this out, I think, and hopefully that will be followed up in Parliament uh, in the coming days. And also it's been interesting to see Peter Dutton's response uh, to the the shutting down of Manus Island because um, he basically suggested that those uh, asylum seekers who will not be offered a place, um, you know, in the American deal, uh, he basically suggested they'd be fake refugees. He's using a, a bit of Trump terminology there and also saying that uh, they have until October to apply for a temporary protection visa uh, which is apparently a 100 page document uh, which also requires a very long statement all in English. I mean is he setting these uh, people up to fail? Oh, absolutely. And I think the other thing you've got to understand about Dutton's claim about fake refugees is that most of these refugees have not been allowed to apply, okay? that They have literally not been allowed by the government to apply for refugee status. So for Dutton to come out and say they're fake refugees, they haven't even bothered to apply, I think is just so outrageous and it shows you the depths to which he is prepared to sink to manipulate the news cycle. I just think it's... A, a reprehensible claim for a, a minister of the Australian government to make. Mm, it is. Um, and one of the other areas, policy areas, that we've seen some developments on and have chatted about uh, here and there on this show is uh, the Adani Carmichael mine, which um, coal mine, I must clarify. Uh, and that's proposed and they were set the Adani board was set to make a decision in about a week but they're putting it off because apparently uh, they can't make a, a proper decision because the Queensland government hasn't really made clear what the tax um, I guess take would be I mean what what is this jostling especially between the federal government and the Queensland government and then the the Adani uh, company it all seems very um, I don't know confusing <laughs> well as we've talked about a number of times the Carmichael mine is not economic on its own terms it, it won't make money and so the Adani company which are very good lobbyists I think we can agree on that they're world-class lobbyists um, have been hassling the Queensland government for as many subsidies as they can wring out of them and so they've asked the federal government for a one billion dollar loan to build the railway and they've asked the Queensland government for a royalty holiday so uh, to not pay the mining royalties uh, which they would normally obviously have to pay in return for digging up all of those mineral resources. Um, now, the Queensland government has said they're not going to offer that, and so Adani looks to have put off their decision about whether to go ahead with the, the full mine 
at this stage. Um, you know, and I think this is just another nail in the coffin of the Carmichael mine. I just don't think that it will stack up ever. Well, it it's very unlikely. And also, it's there's queries around the jobs that it would create. Um, but looking at energy policy more broadly, the Finkel review will come out soon. And there is also has been a lot of jostling on energy policy and particularly gas at the moment with the suggestion that we don't have enough of it, which uh, isn't true. Um, we're sending it overseas instead of utilising it domestically and uh, selling it quite cheaply overseas. That brings up the question of royalties. Are we actually taking enough? No, I mean, I think that's just plainly obvious. We just don't take hardly any royalties in return for letting foreign multinationals exploit our natural resources. Uh, There's been a lot of investigations over the last few years by activists like the Tax Justice Network and also journalists like Michael West, who used to be at Fairfax. Uh, He started up his own investigative journalism website called michaelwest.com.au. I think it's well worth a plug, actually. I Um, agree. And, um, yeah, he's looking into just... It's a scandal, basically. Like, you've got these big companies uh, who are literally paying no royalties and no tax. And Mm -hmm. it's through the usual charade of sending their money to Singapore or Ireland or the Bahamas um, and then claiming that that they have got no revenue in Australia because they've sent all their money offshore. You know, and and it seems as though the, the Australian tax office is powerless to stop them from doing anything. As we know, the ATA has got a few issues of its own yes. uh, with its deputy commissioner <laughs> now on charges. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that Australia's effort to rein in company tax evasion is in tatters, really. Like, we have very much struggled to get on top of that problem. We have. And just finally, um, we did see a, a hearing, basically, which was going around Sydney and Melbourne into um, media in Australia. And Michael West was one of those who gave evidence, which um, was hugely valuable contribution, I think. I was listening to the live stream at the time. Where are we up to in terms of this uh, Fairfax issue um, in terms of the, the redundancy of staff and then also this uh, proposed TPG takeover bid? Um, good question, Amy. So um, we know that the redundancies have been announced, but they haven't been uh, clarified. So Fairfax hasn't released the details of who's going to be made redundant, uh, what the redundancy package will look like. And, of course, at the same time, Fairfax is also looking to be taken over by a private equity firm, TPG, um, and they've made a bid for Fairfax, which the Fairfax board have rejected. Um, And it looks as though there might even be a second bid come in for uh, Fairfax. So... As they say in the media, Fairfax is in play Um, and, you know, it looks as though you might have one or more big, you know, private equity firms come in and try and buy Fairfax out, um, take it off the stock market, uh, fatten it up, you know, over the course of a couple of years and then look to sell it off again in a few years and see if they can make some money. Well, that is concerning for the future of journalism in Australia, isn't it? I can't see how that could possibly be good for the future of journalism in Australia. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Let's uh, keep a watching brief on that and hopefully have a closer look because I think there needs to be more done. Yeah, I think there really does. Um, I have an article in the conversation at the moment where I argue, um, as I pointed out last week, I think that, you know, one of the ways that we could look at doing something here is to maybe uh, impose a content levy on Fairfax, um, (laughs) not on Fairfax, (laughs) on Facebook and Google, the two duopolists who control Australia's online advertising market. 
um, and who currently have no local content regulations on them at all and, by the way, pay almost no tax in mm. this country either. Uh, and, you know, whether we could look at a levy that would then be used to fund local journalism and local Australian content. So um, you can check that out in the conversation. Yes, definitely do. It's an excellent piece, Ben. Um, and uh, levies are in vogue, so you never know your luck. Well, I think it's a it's a sort of belated reaction by policymakers to the overweening power of the multinational corporations. So as these corporations have got bigger and bigger and got more and more sophisticated, they seem to have been able to sort of exit the nation state altogether and be able to sort of swim off into the ether and not really ever even um, pay their obligations, you know. So you've got all these giant companies who are just literally not paying any tax. Um, And so it's not surprising that parliaments and policymakers are looking to step into that breach and say, well, okay, if you're not going to do this, if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to meet your obligations like a good corporate citizen, then we're going to impose more regulations on you because you're clearly not playing by the rules at the moment. Mm. Well, um, that seems fair enough and also good that both sides of politics are actually utilising those instruments that they have available to them. I mean, there'll be a lot of pushback from the big companies because they are very rich and they can buy a lot of friends, you know, and Google has a lot of friends in various quarters of the Australian public sphere. You know, they they are very generous funders to various lobby groups. Um, You know, the Australian Digital Alliance, which many of us think of as a fairly progressive lobby group in terms of copyright reform and things like that, but that's funded by Google. So, you know, all these big companies, the banks are a good example. They are excellent lobbyists and they can buy a lot of friendship. Indeed. Well, money is power. So uh, that's one thing that we need to constantly uh, shine a light on, don't we? Well, power is also power. Mm. And, you know, maybe it's time for parliaments and lawmakers to actually use the power that they've got to, to write new laws, to impose new regulations. Well, we do employ them for that, Ben. So I wholeheartedly endorse your suggestion. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> uh, if only we were running the country. Just you wait. Um, Thank you, Ben, for coming in. It's been wonderful having a chat with you as always. Thanks, Amy. Cheers, mate. Yes, you are listening to 3RRFM. Uh, this is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins and I'm very pleased to have with us Professor Adrienne Stone at the Melbourne Law School who joins us via the phone to discuss uh, a piece that she's written for The Pursuit, which is an online platform um, at the University of Melbourne. And it's really um, drawing... Uh, out the various uh, legal and constitutional um, queries that we have around proposals to reform the constitution and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the Australian constitution and also other potential legislative uh, reforms that may really make a difference to uh, Indigenous Australians. So thank you very much, uh, Adrienne, for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, Adrienne, in your um, in your piece that you've written, you reference first of all um, the history around constitutional change in term, in particular around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and we're coming up to the fiftieth anniversary of the nineteen sixty seven referendum. Could you just share with us uh, what the nineteen sixty seven referendum actually did, and? Uh, how that now um, impacts upon our discussions for this potential change? Sure. There's a, quite a bit of misunderstanding around 1967. It was a really important amendment to the Constitution, but it didn't, for example, 
Um, it wasn't in 1967 through, by virtue of the amendment process that Aboriginal people were entitled to vote. They were entitled to vote well before that, although sometimes they were nonetheless denied it. What the referendum... Um, uh, in 1967 did, was it removed two provisions of the Constitution that sort of created an exceptional position for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. One of them was a provision that uh, provided that Aboriginal people weren't to be counted in the census. Uh, the other one, and they worked together, was a provision that allows the Commonwealth to make laws uh, relating to race, but there was an exception in it prior to 1967 which said other than the Aboriginal people, um, and that meant that Aboriginal people, unlike other people, laws that pertain especially to them were matters of state law, not federal law. Now, the impetus in 1967 was to take out those exceptional, those aspects of exceptional treatment for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and, and really properly include them along with everyone else in the polity um, by amending those aspects of the, of the Constitution. So it sort of, it was sometimes described as the deletion of an exception. So, I mean, that's bringing uh, Indigenous Australians on par in terms of their, I guess, legal treatment um, through the the Constitution. But in terms of um, updating our Constitution and altering it to recognise Indigenous Australians as Australia's first peoples, there has been a a range of suggestions that um, it might be important to recognise that Australia was, um, you know, and did have a first peoples and that really, um, you know, we came along much later in the piece. I mean, this is um, what some people have termed minimalist change. What kind of change would that be in the Constitution in terms of um, the symbolic recognition of Indigenous Australians? So you're right. The the debate's moved on from 1967 and there is a a thought around now that the Constitution properly needs to recognise the special place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, And that would make us more like constitutions in other parts of the world that have Indigenous peoples that tend to do that. Now, the most minimal option, and I think the one that perhaps, uh, not the most, well, one of the most minimal options, and the one that I think perhaps most people assumed was what was put on the table initially, might do the following thing. First of all, even after 1967, there remain some racially problematic aspects of the Constitution. Um, there's a provision that uh, seems to contemplate that states might exclude people from voting on the basis of race, Section 25. So we could just delete that. It does nothing, but it's problematic. The second one would be to take what's called the racist power, which was amended in 1967, and reformulate it. The reason it needs reformulation is that um, it's a power to make special laws for the people of Aboriginal, of any race, rather, now including Aboriginal people. Um, and the High Court um, uh, has, has said that this includes, or likely includes, a power to make discriminatory laws. Um, it doesn't tend to be used in that way, but there raises a prospect in our Constitution that the, that the Commonwealth actually has a power that enables it to enact racially discriminatory laws. And so one of the, the thinking is that we need to address that. It's complex. We can't, we can't just delete that power um, because, for example, it provides the... Um, it allows for laws that um, provide for the advancement or the protection of people of particular races and it provides the power under which the Commonwealth makes native title law, provides for the protection of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage. So the usual thought is what we need to do is to find some way to recast that section so that it is limited and it doesn't allow for discriminatory laws. So get rid of Section 25, amend the race of power and the third element of the minimum proposal usually is include some kind of 
what we call a preambular statement that um, contains symbolic language recognising the special place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Indeed, and I mean, when when it comes to uh, native title, um, there is this uh, that concept of um, terra nullius that was around. What is the interaction between um, potentially native title and those constitutional changes? Could do, does that does that need to be a factor or something to be kept in mind when making these uh, potential amendments? Yeah, the most important thing to do. Um, to support the current native title regime, which, as you know, in 1992, the High Court overturned the concept of terra nullius and recognised a native title. And that's now supported and implemented through a, a, large legislative, uh, reg- uh, a large legislative regime. Now, that relies upon the racist power. So that's why we need, in order to make sure that native title continues to be something for which the Commonwealth can make laws, we need not to remove the racist power, but to amend it in a way that it, enables the Commonwealth to continue to act those sort of laws, but not to to impose discriminatory burdens on people because of their race. Indeed. And, I mean, we're talking about this because um, there is a national convention, uh, the opening ceremony of which is today, and then the talks begin tomorrow and continue for four days. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, that 300 delegates um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who will discuss a range of options and uh, try to seek a consensus view uh, of what they may want to put forward to the Prime Minister and the opposition leader um, as potential reforms and uh, there are a few um, ideas floating about and you float um, some of these yourself and and discuss I guess the various options that have been um, put forward and there is I guess two um, different aspects which you could do uh, both of but there is this one that we've just been discussing which is uh, changes to the constitution uh, which would it has been discussed as a a minimalist or symbolic gesture and then there are uh, other structural reforms which would be implemented through legislation. What are some of the legislative reforms that could be put forward and that have already been floated? All right, so there are, if I could just say, um, some other amendments to the Constitution. Absolutely, feel free. Um, And um, and I think it's pretty clear that um, amongst Indigenous peoples, the minimalist option that I've just floated for you is not at all popular. Um, and there's a strong interest in, in something that achieves something much more in terms of practical reform. And so among the possibilities, let me just mention two. One is a prohibition on racial discrimination. We've already got a prohibition on racial discrimination in the Ordinary Act, the Racial Discrimination Act, but you put it in the Constitution and it becomes significantly more powerful and it's not possible for uh, the Parliament to to amend or suspend it. So that would be one thing, a racial non-discrimination clause. Another thing uh, which has been um, has been floated by a number of Indigenous leaders, including Noel Pearson, might be to provide for, in the Constitution, a body representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that would have powers to consult with the Parliament um, um, on questions that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it would be a structural way of making sure that there's an Indigenous voice in the Parliament. So those, I think, are the two you might want to call middle options. And then, I guess, at the, in one sense, at the other end of the spectrum, there are proposals that, you know, put aside constitutional recognition altogether or postpone it. And um, there are certainly uh, plenty of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and maybe others who think that the way to approach uh, recognition is not through the Constitution but through a treaty. 
Well, yes, absolutely. And it does raise the issue that the Constitution is really a product of its time. Um, you know, in 1901, um, when we were federated, it really was a different period. And um, as you referenced there, human rights weren't enshrined in the in the Constitution necessarily or not extensively. And um, we have seen worldwide that uh, other other countries with Indigenous populations have provided this recognition in their constitutions. Do you think that it would make sense um, to really step forward uh, in terms of Australia's place across the world in terms of recognising Indigenous Australians in the constitution? Um, Look, I do. I um, don't think yet that I've made up my mind about what exactly it should look like, but I think... Uh, constitutional recognition would be a really significant step forward for our constitutional culture. Having said that, I think it is really important at this stage of the debate that it's led by Indigenous people who are able to articulate really powerfully what what they would want, what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would want, Um, because what, what constitutional recognition really offers us is the chance to make a proper political settlement with the Indigenous people, the Australian, a whole of Australia to make a proper political settlement with Indigenous people. And for that to happen, um, which would be a good thing because they were not properly treated as sovereign people when we were served. They they never ceded their sovereignty and they were denied the opportunity to make a political settlement. And I think they need that opportunity now. So that's why I hope in one way or another we find a way um, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can agree upon and that the rest of Australia can agree upon that provides for constitutional recognition in, recognition in some form. Yes, and Noel Pearson has uh, recently said that we shouldn't underestimate Australians' ability to come to the party on this and to really um, embrace this recognition. As we shouldn't be too cynical um, of what Australians would be prepared to do because I think, um, as you say, the time is right and uh, it really is completely unresolved um, in terms of of history and, and what was done. Um, and, uh, and I'm really interested to hear what those discussions um, really do bring about. Um, and one of the, the other areas um, that we floated just before was that legislation. And as you know, um, legislation, I guess, is not necessarily as uh, solid as the Constitution because it requires a referendum to alter the Constitution. But um, in terms of the powers that politicians have to make a difference for Indigenous Australians, what are some of the things that um, that people have already uh, suggested as potential real structural reforms that may make a a real impact? So I think um, really the detail of Indigenous policy as opposed to constitutional recognition are probably things that I should uh, uh, leave to others. Um, uh, But uh, really my concern is that we should have a constitution that provides the right kinds kinds of structures that mean that when politicians, when the parliament does exercise its power, which make real differences, um, one thing that you might want to ensure is that the parliament really properly listens to the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So for those who are attracted to the, to the proposal that um, provides a voice for Indigenous people in the uh, parliament, it's precisely because um, that body potentially has ongoing significance in providing, feeding that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice into the lawmaking process. 
Yes, and this suggestion of a body, um, an organisation or yeah. a body that would inform Parliament yeah. has been um, suggested as a potential measure that would be put into legislation. In your legal view, um, do you think that it... What is the difference, I, I guess, between putting it in the Constitution and um, legislating for it? I think there are two differences. One is that when you put it in the Constitution, then it can't be abolished. I mean, we've had Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bodies before, at Secret One, and they was ultimately abolished. Now, um, where a body's provided for in the Constitution, that becomes much, much harder to do. Okay, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing... Uh, so, if, and just to be totally clear, that means if in some point in time, you know, public opinion or the politicians of the day sort of change their mind about um, uh, about having a body to represent Indigenous people, that that's not enough to simply to abolish it. So it's a stronger form of recognition. The second uh, thing I think is that um, this is uh, that it's actually a very powerful symbol. Uh, although I understand why people don't want purely symbolic change, I think we just can't overlook the fact that the Constitution, precisely because it's a foundational do- document, has a kind of gravitas. It has a seriousness. And um, to amend it requires a big political movement. Um, if we were to put a body representing Australian Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples in our constitution, it would serve as a very, very powerful, ongoing reminder that our first peoples have a special place in our policy. Uh, and I, I, my own view is that that's pretty healthy for your constitutional politics. Certainly is, and should that um, be the case that that we go down that path, um, then that would move to a referendum. Um, the the council um, that's putting this, um, the really collating the views and and then bringing them forward to the politicians, um, will you know obviously deliver their report by the end of June. Um, should that be the case that that's one of the items and that constitution does need to be amended, what is the actual yeah. process? To, to get that moving? So the process is twofold. Firstly, there's a parliamentary process. The parliament has to enact what is uh, effectively a, a bill, like a law, um, that has to, be, has to be accepted by both houses of parliament. And that bill would contain, in quite precise terms, the amendment to the constitution. So it would say, we will add this text, or maybe we'll take out this text, we'll take out section 25, we'll reshape section the race power, and then we'll add this text that introduces something new into the Constitution and it will put, you'll have an opportunity to look at exactly what the amendment will say. Um, if that's pa- pa- passed by both Houses of Parliament, then we trigger the referendum process and that includes, among other things, um, that there will be um, a formal yes case and a formal no case. Um, that is, that there'll be um, uh, somebody that will be tasked with supporting a referendum and someone with opposing it. There's time for a national debate and ultimately we all vote. And at that vote, in order to succeed, the amendment must be accepted by the people overall and by a majority in a majority of states, so an over, what we call the double majority, a majority overall of Australia and a majority in a majority of states. Yes, and in terms of the history of referendums and altering the constitution, uh, how many times has it actually been successful and what were those occasions? So there have been eight occasions out of 42 or 43 uh, attempts um, and um, uh, they've been and it's been quite a while now since uh, a, a referendum has succeeded lots of 
your listeners might remember, in 1999 there was a referendum to amend the Constitution uh, for the purpose of implementing a republic that failed. Mm. Um, however, there have been um, some successes, and one of the biggest successes, one of the amendments that passed with the highest level of support ever was the 1967 amendment. Um, and um, then Malcolm Fraser, during his term, amended uh, the Constitution uh, three times. Those were the last amendments. And uh, one of, there were some amendments after 1975 to deal with some of the problems that arose during the constitutional crisis of 1975 um, that deal with things like what's called a casual vacancy in the Senate. If somebody dies or retires as a senator, it's now very clear that you have to replace them with someone from their own political party, not from another political party, for instance. Um, and then there was a, the, maybe the most popular um, uh, uh, the most popular referendum amendment at, of all, which was to have a compulsory retirement age for judges uh, in 1987. <laughs> so there's some of the, the kinds of things that um, have um, occurred over time. But they, you know, they go right back to the 1940s. And, um, for example, there was a, implemented a power under which the Commonwealth provides us with the pharmaceutical benefit scheme was something that had to be done by referendum. So... That's there's fascinating. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, there's a long history, um, but it's a rare event, um, and many more referendums have failed than have succeeded. Indeed, and, and hence the need to really um, put forward uh, something that I guess um, everyone is likely to accept uh, in the end, right. but also not limit, um, you know, what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want, um, because that's really important. And I'm glad that it's been framed um, by those attending the delegation or the, the convention that, you know, we should actually be, you know, pulling back all of this political discussion about what's palatable to begin with and really think about actually what's meaningful and useful um, for our first peoples. It's a delicate balancing act, uh, our constitutional amendment, because uh, you both have to be extremely you know, open to possibilities in order to get as much support as you can, but at some point you do need to fasten upon a solution and put it to the people, and that solution needs to be fairly specific, otherwise we don't know what we're voting on. Um, and, and it's a trick for moving for, every, you know, in the Republican referendum, everyone, there was a massive support for the idea of a republic, but not so much support for any particular um, model. So it's, it's bridging that gap between the general and the detail that is the trick, I think. Indeed, absolutely. And I mean, these consultations that have been conducted around the country um, have culminated in this uh, national convention and and this is the, the time, I guess, these next four days will be the time that uh, they narrow down the detail uh, and then the council will report back. So I'm really looking forward to um, following this because, uh, and our station is too, it's such an important area um, and uh, and certainly um, I personally support whatever um, in Indigenous Australians put forward. I think it's a wonderful and empowering process um, that, you know, we're finally listening to, um, to what they uh, need and really responding to what has happened historically. Yeah, it's an exciting time, I have to say. Um, I hope that it turns out to be a very fruitful time. I'm looking, I'm just waiting with bated breath to see what comes <laughs> out of these conventions. Indeed, it's very exciting to be a constitutional law expert. It always is. <laughs> <laughs> it's always exciting to be it's a big week, I agree. It is, it is. Uh, we'll keep an eye on this, I'm sure. Um, thank you so much, Professor Adrian Stone, for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure.
And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. I have with me in the studio uh, Warwick Smith, who is a research economist at Per Capita, which is a think tank based in Melbourne. And um, Warwick has written this wonderful report, which is on the history of unemployment policy in Australia. You can access this report on the Per Capita website. And he's also written an op-ed for the New Daily. And um, and you can, I'm sure, sure check that out from his uh, Twitter account, which is Rico Eco. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Warwick. Pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it's great to have you because um, there's so much econobabble, as um, I'll use a Richard Dennis term there, um, it, within this whole area of employment. And there's also layers of ideology across the history of this field. I'm really glad that um, you took the time to, to take us through this history um, in the report. And First of all, let's start with the idea of full employment because this was actually once an aim, an Australian policy aim of multiple Labor and Liberal governments. How was that the case? Yeah, that is the case and it it first really became the case in 1945 uh, when the policymakers of the time had lived through both the Great Depression and the Second World War. And they learnt really important lessons from those experiences. You know, the Great Depression, we had unemployment around 20% in Australia and, and in some instances in some places much higher and particularly youth unemployment was much higher than that. And this wasn't caused by some kind of fundamental economic circumstance. There was nothing wrong with the Australian economy. There was nothing wrong with our agriculture. There was nothing wrong with our mining sector. There was nothing wrong with, with, with any of our economy, really. It was a financial crisis that caused this problem. And these policymakers of the time realised that it didn't have to be that way. You know, there were, there were policy options that, um, that could see full employment maintained. And that was demonstrated very clearly by the experience of the Second World War. You know, we came straight out of the Depression into the Second World War and suddenly everybody had a job. Mm. Absolutely everybody had a job. And, and you know, two-thirds of the economy effectively was either employed directly in the armed services or supporting the armed services in the conflict. Um, and coming out of the Second World War, these, these policy thinkers were saying, well, if we can employ everybody for a war, why can't we employ everybody during the peace? And, and that's pretty much exactly what they did. So when the Second World War ended, the, um, the government at the time, the Curtin government, prepared a white paper on full employment. And what they mean by full employment is that everybody who wants a job can find one. That's the simplest definition of full employment. And it doesn't mean there's no unemployment because there's a certain level of unemployment that's the technical term is frictional unemployment that is necessary just in switching from one job to another or after finishing a qualification and looking for a job or being retrenched and and being retrained for another job. There's always some level of unemployment and back in those days, that level was about between one and a half and two percent. Well, that's a pretty stark contrast to the current actual rate of unemployment that's measured, isn't it? That's right, absolutely. And not only that, but the current rate of unemployment is has a very tight definition, mm. which is anybody who is working less than one hour per week and who could start work within a week. And so we have a lot of people in Australia who aren't 
technically unemployed, but they're underemployed, which is another term. That's for people who would like to work more but can't get more hours. And there are a lot of those in Australia. Well, given the casualisation of the workforce, that's, you know, one aspect of underemployment, but also women um, who work part-time, if they also care for children or uh, elder parents, would be classed as underemployed, potentially? Potentially, if only if they want more hours. Mm. So often the the case, in those circumstances, they might be part-time and they might be stressed for money and need more money, but they they physically can't work more hours sometimes because of their other commitments. Indeed. Well, let's go to this white paper um, from, was it 1945 you mentioned? Um, And I mean, you quote um, this paper at length. It's on page 13 if anyone's uh, playing along at home. And um, this is really interesting in terms of the terminology um, that's used and the idea that we'd be wasting resources if we were, if we had a high level of unemployment, and it's the first and greatest step to higher living standards for all, if we actually, um, you know, make sure that we we achieve full employment. I mean, that's a, a very. It's in a positive. It's talking about employment in a positive to begin with, as well as unemployment, um, and the idea that it, it has many benefits and that it's a collective benefit, not just an individual yes, benefit. Yes. I mean, what um, what do you think that this white paper really demonstrates? about the thinking at the time? Well, I think there's a a lot of things, actually, we can learn from this white paper. One is political ambition, you know, just being really brave and bold. And another thing is about the complexity of of the conversation. I think we've lost a lot of complexity and nuance in our conversation about the role of government and about economic management. And the white paper doesn't balk from any of that. It talks about capitalism and, and a market-based capitalist system and that if if we want the benefits of a market-based capitalist system, which, you know, they're embracing in the white paper, um, then we need to acknowledge the costs of that system. And one of the costs is unemployment. In a, in a market-based system, there are always, by definition, pretty much, there are going to be winners and losers. And if we want if we want the winners and we want the benefits, then we need to collectively look after the losers. If that's a decision we're making that we're going to embrace that system, then we should take responsibility for the losers. And some of those losers are the unemployed. And so this white paper says we have a collective responsibility because these, are, these people are a product of the system that we're embracing. We have a collective responsibility to look after them and, and that's precisely what they did. Mm. And presumably they um, got some of their bravery or political courage from um, the fallout of World War Two, and that it was a time of great upheaval and change and and obviously you can capitalise on the fact that, you know, it's easier to make reform when there's already change occurring. Yeah. Um, what were some of the reforms that they did actually enact or create um, from this white paper? Well, they created a, a situation really where there was finance available to local government in particular, but also um, federal government agencies and even some private agencies where if somebody came asking for a job, they could get one. So you could walk up to a, a rail yard ask for a job and be given a job. And if you didn't have the right skills for a job that they had, then they would train you in the skills. So, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It seems almost (laughs) too simple. I have the same (laughs) attitude about this that I have about homelessness. You know, that clearly the best solution to homelessness is to provide people with homes, right? 
Indeed. Same yeah. with joblessness. Provide people with jobs. Mm. Well, it was called the Commonwealth Employment Service, which I really like because um, it just seems also very straightforward. We're here to make sure that you're employed. Yes. And that if the private sector cannot provide that employment, that the government will step in and provide it. That's right. So their, their sort of macroeconomic story, their big economic story about the economy was that unemployment is a result of insufficient demand for labour from the private sector, right? which is a pretty basic, straightforward explanation for unemployment. The, the private sector, businesses, um, are not employing enough people. And so the government acknowledged that it can and should use its spending power as the Commonwealth government to sort of prop up the economy to the point where full employment is created. And now that doesn't mean employing all of those people because uh, there are lots of other ways to promote employment. But, but at, a, at a baseline level, those people who can't get a job, that's right, they, they're employed. And, and the impact of that is that those people then have uh, an active economic life. They, they're, they're consumers and they have a wage. They spend money, that props up the businesses around them. Those businesses then do better. They employ more people, so on and so on. So the, the effect when it's fully employed of a, of a full employment policy is, is not a huge government outlay. Because what they're really doing is just picking up when the economy falls a little bit and that stops other businesses from contracting and firing people, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a sort of downward spiral that can occur in those circumstances in the absence of, of government intervention. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes sense. And the interesting thing that I found when I read your piece was that the Commonwealth Employment Service operates very differently or operated very differently from Centrelink and the way that we now currently do it. And that it offered a certain level of security that does not exist under something like New Start now. What was it offering, apart from that idea of uh, full employment and that you could walk in and definitely get a job, what were some of the features that made that particularly unique and effective? Well, they had individual case management that instead of, as it is today, where they're, you know, watching whether you're performing the right tasks that they're asking you to perform, regardless of how useful those tasks are, instead of basically being police... They, they were dedicated to assisting people finding work and, and reasonably resourced to do so. So they could, for instance, provide money to, to relocate if you needed to relocate for a job. So uh, in a sense, it's a, a subsidy to, to get people to move to the right places where there are work. Um, and they could direct you to the right sort of training for the kind of work that's around at the time. They'd assess your skills and... and match you up with jobs that fit your skills was very targeted and and dedicated so the first option always was to try to get people into private sector employment Um, and then the job guarantee was a sort of fallback from there indeed and was the um the support or the welfare support um that they provided during that transition period was that substantial uh, it wouldn't well compared to now. I'm just making the the point that New Start is very low in terms of um, the ability for anyone to really live on it, yeah. and also then be an active job seeker, an effective active job mm. seeker. I mean, was it supported enough in terms of someone's ability to feel empowered and and not too financially stressed that it really was an overwhelming thing? No, the, strictly speaking, the unemployment benefit was still very low, but but the simple fact was that if 
it was too low, you could go and get a job, mm. right? Yeah. So if, if, if you didn't have enough money to sustain a job search to get the job you really wanted, then you could walk into somewhere like a rally and get a job. Mm. So the circumstances were just very different and people weren't, weren't unemployed for long. There was no category called long-term unemployed back then. Yeah, well, that brings us to a great um, point in the story because when we have um, what you would class as full employment, it means that uh, the workers would have greater power, um, bargaining mm. power for income and wage growth, um, and also to know that should you leave your job because the conditions aren't right or you um, would prefer to work in another sector, that it's likely that you will very quickly be employed again. That's right. I mean, that is a, a huge, it's almost a foreign country. Um, when you think about that concept now, what, um, you know, how did this lead to the idea of um, inflation and the, I guess, pushing down of, of wages and that balancing act that is now, um, has been input through that, that lovely um, act what is it, acronym that I, um, that you might know off the, the top Nairu. of your head. Yeah. Yes. The non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. That's right. As I say in the report, only an economist could come up with that. I'm yeah. in the paper. Um, yeah, so what you said at the beginning is, is really correct, that having full employment gives power to labour. So workers, the ultimate bargaining chip a worker has is to walk away. And when there's a big pool of unemployed people ready to take their job, that's not much of a threat, right? It's not much of a threat to the employer. And so, but when there's full employment and labour's hard to come by, then that really does give um, labour extra power to demand better conditions and higher wages. And again, that was explicitly acknowledged in the 1945 white paper. What the government said was, yes, this will create upward pressure on inflation, but the government will use all of its other powers to put downward pressure on inflation to compensate. And included in that was uh, an acknowledgement that the government can help to improve productivity. There's another, another term that we'll have to wrestle with is, is mm. productivity. And labour productivity is basically just a measure of how much economic output, what value can be produced with an hour of labour. So that's labour productivity. And then there's total productivity, which is uh, how much can pre be produced uh, in value when you combine both labour, well, labour, capital and land. Mm. Okay. So in terms of <clears throat> labour productivity and tying that to incomes, I mean, what is the relationship between that at the moment? And, you know, what was the relationship at the time? Yeah, so as I was saying... Having a low unemployment level means that workers have quite a strong capacity to demand wage increases. And what happens if, if wages grow faster than labour productivity, that is the amount you're paying your workers increases faster than the value they're producing, that's when, that's when you start to get inflation uh, because inflation is what you can buy for your money, really. So it's, it's the value of money. Um, so when there's more of it or more, uh, more people having higher disposable incomes, they can spend more. And does that then increase inflation? Well, only if production can't keep up with that increase in spending. Mm. So that's the issue about productivity. So if wages are going up 
faster than the things that people want, than the quantity of things that people want to buy, whether that's goods or services, then there's more money bidding for a limited number of goods and services. And, and the result of that is that the people who are providing those goods and services can start selling them to the highest bidder. Mm. Right? So they'll sell them to the people who are willing to pay the most. And that lifts, and that lifts the average price. And at that time, you know, at the white paper time, and then moving into this this point of um, neoliberalism and and bringing in this Nairu, um, what I mean, what were the? I guess, sorry, I've just lost my train of thought. Um, in terms of where people's uh, power was, you're saying that the Labor movement um, had greater power before this and then they're losing power now And in terms of this um, this focus on inflation and making sure that we keep inflation down and that's the focus of um, the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia now, as opposed to at the time the, the federal government having that power. That's um, right. You know, they had more levers, I guess, to pull at the time um, because it was was not a deregulated economy. It was pre-Keating. Yeah. Um, now that we have the Reserve Bank uh, pulling those levers in terms of inflation and um, this this lovely acronym Nairu, what um, is available in terms of the levers to pull um, for inflation that might be um, different to what we're currently doing? Are there any other different measures that we could be utilising apart from um, maintaining a certain level of unemployment, which, um, you know, what is the current level of unemployment that's desired well, they reckon about 5.5% is, is the estimate of the Nauru. So we didn't really talk about the Nauru, mm. but the Nauru is the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And that is a kind of fancy way of saying the level of unemployment below which we'll start to get inflation pressure. So the idea is at the moment, the I think it's the IMF have our, our Nauru at 5.5%. Uh, and the thinking is that if we fall below 5.5%, then labour will gain enough power to push wages beyond productivity. That's the theory. And the tricky thing about that is that there's no formula for the Nairu, right? Everybody calculates it a bit differently. There's not really an agreed-on idea of what it is amongst economists. Um, but despite that, we, we kind of use it and we, and we think in those terms. And it, it completely ignores all of the other things that influence inflation, as the white paper did. The white paper talked about the different ways that inflation pressures occur and the way that government can put downward pressure on inflation and that's sort of bringing you to your question. Um, so what are some of those measures, sorry, about yeah. that influence inflation? Because we really are, we're talking about one of those aspects which is has been key in terms of how a neoliberal um, economy is run and we're focusing on making sure that wage growth doesn't get, inverted commas, out of control. Uh, what are some of the other reasons why inflation might occur? Well, the, the key things that keep inflation down are, uh, well, innovation really is, is the word. Um, the buzzword. But, but, <laughs> but that can take many different forms. Um, and so it can be innovation in how we do things um, or it can be innovation in, in sort of what we do to produce what we produce. Uh, so the skills of the workers are a big part of productivity. So education's a big element in productivity and so is research and development um, and sort of workplace innovation in terms of workplace culture and the workplace environment can really affect productivity. 
And do you think then that um, that those particular areas could be utilised better at the moment? Absolutely. And, and again, this contrast between now and the post-war boom days when the government explicitly saw its role as promoting innovation in Australia and they set up several um, great institutions, the CSIRO being one of them. The CSIRO was for many years considered the premier government research organisation in the world um, and they, they did amazing things, particularly for agricultural productivity, but in all sorts of areas across the Australian economy. And so that was government-funded research that was then essentially just handed out to the private sector to use. And, and that those innovations really played a big role in, mm. in um, increasing Australia's labour productivity. And now we're really reliant upon the private sector to innovate. That's right. And far less on government funding. Um, and certainly the CSIRO has been hollowed out, um, as we've seen in the news over the last few few years. Um, well, even longer than that, but yep. more substantially in the last few yep. years. I mean... What, uh, like, why should we be focusing on perhaps some of these other levers as opposed to, um, you know, unemployment? Well, I think the human cost is the obvious answer. Um, and what's preventing us? Is it, is it just ideology, do you think, at the moment, or political palatability? Yes, I do think it's ideology. And it, it's a, you know, it's a story of class and power, ultimately, Um it's kind of unfashionable to talk about class and power these days. It's very, but, very um, unfashionable. But that's what this story is about. It's about what the white paper acknowledged as as a f- sort of fundamental clash between capital and labour. There's no there's no kind of getting around the existence of this clash. That that if the owners of capital, so you combine, you know, our economy is combining capital and land with labour to produce goods and services, and Unemployment and this talk about inflation is um, a sort of story about how we divide the national product, you know, what we produce as a nation between the owners of capital and the workers. And at the moment, that balance is really in favour of the owners of capital, as we see with, with corporate profits increasing 65% last year and wages basically flat. Mm-hmm. So we're doing really well as an economy, but... Wage earners are not are not seeing that at the moment. No, and we are in terms of wage growth, it is just dismal. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, the public service is doing slightly better than those in the private sector, but um, it's not a huge difference. Is no, it? it's not a huge difference. And and so yeah, coming back to your question, this is an ideological battle, and the owners of capital for a long time hated the post-war boom years, right? Inequality was falling, and if inequality is falling, it means the people at the top are slowly but steadily getting a smaller share of our of our product, and they couldn't overturn the um, the full employment policy of those years because it was too popular. You know, um, Menzies almost lost an election because unemployment crept up towards three <laughs> percent, um, and so they had to wait. Really, they had to wait, and they were formulating these ideas which were about individualism and freedom and you know those are the the kind of uh excuses i suppose for the policies um but ultimately they're about shattering the power of labor and and the oil shocks of the 1970s were what allowed them 
a door in. They could say, okay, we so we had out of control inflation because um, OPEC cut back the supply of oil and the prices went through the roof. And because oil sits behind almost everything, the prices of almost everything went up. Mm-hmm. And we had this out of control inflation. And here were these free market ideologues waiting in the wings and they jumped in and said, see, this Keynesian full employment policy is a failure. Um, and by no coincidence, at the same time in the 1970s, those policy, all those policy thinkers who had lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War were either dead or retired. So you had a point, a sort of weak point uh, at that time because those people were gone and there were new people who'd been trained in this new neoclassical economics, which was about free markets and free choice and individualism. And, and they took the reins from the mid-1970s onwards and oriented us towards an individualist approach to unemployment, you know, where, where unemployment became the unemployed person's fault, really. Rather than a collective responsibility, it became an individual responsibility and all of the rhetoric turned to, be t- to talk about employability. So if the unemployed... The unemployed need to be trained better. They need to be pushed to write good resumes. They need to be... They need to turn up. They need to, you know, they've got to stay active. And all of that is still part of the same... Uh, you know, capital versus labour contest. Because if you get unemployed people who are discouraged, who leave the labour force or who don't look for work properly, then they don't act as an effective buffer of unemployed people to constrain wages, right? You actually need people who are there ready, willing to take the job of somebody who's taking industrial action or, you know, seeking better wages or seeking better conditions. You need those people clamouring at the doors, right? Because that is the constraint on labour and on wage pressures. Well, that's, <clears throat> excuse me, really interesting because it reminds me of um, your reference to the Accord, which was almost a bit of a halfway house between this, on the extreme, the full free market, um, you know, individualist thinking, and then the earlier Keynesian social democratic approach. There was almost um, somewhat of a social contract in the sense that, yes, we're deregulating the economy, we're removing tariffs, um, there will be job losses in the manufacturing sector and in agriculture but we'll make sure that you're not left behind um how effective that was i'm not sure but you know there was some move by labor at that point to try and minimize the the cost or um, suffering that occurred to those who were um most disadvantaged i mean we've seen um labor in particular be one of those parties who has traditionally meant to be representing the worker I mean, it did originally have social democratic um, origins and and had that in their constitution. What has been the story of Labor in this uh, history of unemployment? And because clearly at the moment, they're not the same as they used to be in terms of the way that they interact in this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. And, you know, it was a Labor government that... um, that wrote the 1945 white paper and we were relatively lucky that it was a Labor government in power at the time when the sort of international zeitgeist was for neoliberalism because, as you say, the the Wages and Incomes Accord, usually just called the Accord, it significantly softened the blow of those reforms uh, for Australian workers when you compare what happened in the United States under Reagan and the UK under Thatcher at the same time where... That was just, you know, 
these people are collateral damage. We have to modernise the economy and, you know, too bad, really. Sorry, but this is, this is what we have to do. Whereas, whereas here, as you say, under the Accord, Labor were actively working the entire time with the union movement, particularly with the ACTU, and what they were saying to the union movement was, yes, you know, this is, there's going to be blows to workers in these reforms. There are going to be job losses. And in some instances, there is going to be uh, a sort of lower capacity of workers to demand wages. They acknowledged all of those things. But in return, we're going to increase what we call a social wage. And that's the services uh, and infrastructure that government provide um, to the unemployed, but also just to workers in general and to the population in general. So that included um, Medicare, which was, you know, obviously a, a very big win for this country. Um, and and that included, at the time, reasonably generous unemployment benefits uh, and other services to help unemployed people retrain and, you know, increases to education funding. And, and the pension being quite decent. That's right. That's and superannuation. Right. Yes, and the introduction of superannuation. Yeah, and I mean, if we're looking now at um, then, I guess, the labour of today, um, is that kind of accord or social contract even marginally in existence or sought by the party? I mean, I think it it is, but it's not... It's never made explicit. And I think they could benefit from making it explicit, actually. So, you know, labour... Labor policy at the moment is a much better funded education system, and that's that's broadly in the in the sort of uh, accord framework that the, the better educated we are, the sort of the, the better we're able to demand wages and to you know uh, increase our productivity and all of those things. And and Labor have always been stronger champions of Medicare than than the coalition. Uh, so I think I think all of the vestiges remain but the sort of story about it is missing mm. and it's it's lost its nuance and it's lost its you know okay yes we're doing this great thing there are going to be trade-offs and instead it's all black and white it's all kind of this is great and we should you know and and we'll sweep the dark bits under the carpet and that's the case for both sides of politics there's the conversations really and i think probably because it's become so much more adversarial um, any sort of admission that there's a negative side of a policy, that's the bit that will be taken and run with. Not the fact that, you know, yes, we've not a negative side and we're going to do something about that, but it's we want to do this and it's going to have this cost. The cost is the bit that's latched onto by both the media mm-hmm. and the opposition or, you know, the opponents, whatever it might be, the, the government or the opposition. Um, and I think that's quite a big part of the explanation as to why the nuance is gone. Yeah, because I guess they're seeking um, that most people will be a winner or at least the loudest voices will be the winners. Yeah. And therefore, you you know, you're minimising political damage uh, when it comes to election time. That's right. I mean, you look at Labor's um, education policy where they, where they said no school will lose money. You know, that's a classic example. Mm, Definitely. Well, I mean, let's just talk about capital's obligations because they don't um, exist in a a completely free environment. There are regulations and also they have an ethical and moral responsibility um, as, you know, organisations operating in our society as well. Um, They do contribute a lot 
as well, you know, to people being employed, yep. but yep. they have obligations naturally as individuals do. And one of the interesting um, aspects of their obligation is around, um, I guess, being thinking about who is qualified for a job and making sure that um, I guess they're not closing the door to those who may actually be potentially, um, you know, true meritorious in inverted commas um, applicants and you raise the idea of youth unemployment and that being substantially higher than general unemployment yep. across the nation and you referenced um, on uh, on page 23 there was an interesting point um, that there has never been any evidence that lack of skills or employability disorganisation or poor work ethic are a substantial cause of youth unemployment. So I mean there is a bit of a, a su- suggestion within that or an implication that uh, are we really looking at um, those coming through the tertiary education system and those graduates as not being desirable because they lack experience as opposed to, um, you know, lacking skills and, and knowledge? Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's a bigger, picture, bigger picture issue really that if, if there aren't enough jobs for the number of people who are looking for jobs, which is the case at the moment, then those who are going to get the jobs are the ones with experience. So so the elevated youth unemployment is simply a, a reflection of the fact that there is unemployment. So that, you know, there's obviously a trade-off at some point with jobs in terms of, you know, you, you get the younger worker who's the fresh graduate, you pay them less. Mm. But in a tight jobs environment, you can usually get somebody with some experience and pay them pretty much the same, right? Because there's a lot of unemployed people out there and and wage growth is pretty flat. And so that trade-off when there's a high unemployment for for employers is less of a trade-off and they can usually afford that person with a bit of experience. You know, it might be two years experience, but that can make quite a big difference. Yeah, it's interesting because um, it's often said that the best hiring practice is promoting or hiring on potential rather than experience Mm. because you get the best out of people. Are they not shooting themselves in the foot, I guess, for not fostering a pipeline enough? Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, it's it's an exaggeration to say all this stuff isn't going on. It's just that, obviously, you know, there are plenty of graduates who do get jobs. Um, And, you know, university graduates are, are a smaller part of the story, now, this story is more about those people who don't go to university. You know, they're much yeah. more overrepresented in terms of the unemployed. Indeed. It's also interesting, though, that, that we're seeing a push for people to take up master's degrees and further education because you need to be even more competitive. And I guess that highlights just how significant the disadvantage is between those who don't pursue or can't pursue higher education and then those who are already completing a bachelor's degree and then those who are encouraged even more to continue to spend their money uh, and not be able to take up youth allowance because they're doing a postgraduate degree. I guess it highlights the scale of disadvantage that there is in terms of employment. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and I think, you know, some people argue, to go back to the the Nairu, some people argue that the Nairu is so high now at 5.5% compared to, you know, one and a half, two percent in previous decades, because a lot of the low-skilled jobs have either been replaced by machines or have been sent offshore, and so 
there there just isn't the same proportion of relatively low-skilled jobs that there once were. And so low-skilled workers are, are um, left, a lot of low-skilled workers are left unemployed. Now, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that, but, but even if it's true, we shouldn't be saying, oh, well, we, we need 5.5% unemployment then. We should be saying, all right, well, let's give our workers more skills, better skills. That should be the focus. Mm. It should be on, um, you know, training our workers and in particular training workers who uh, have been in industries that are, that are no longer employing people in Australia. And, so, and those industries that will be declining, such as coal, um, you know, absolutely. and timber industries. I mean, let's now finally look to the future. What are some of the potential solutions, forgetting about the um, political palatability yeah. of it, but actually what could we do if we're thinking big about changing things and actually reaching something like full employment that isn't 5.5% but say 2%? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if we want to be really ambitious, then we could implement a job guarantee, you know, similar in, along a similar vein to what was done in the post-war boom, where the federal government will, through local agencies, so it needs to be needs to be local and it needs to be around, does, the jobs need to be designed around things that actually need doing in those communities, not about just creating work for work's sake, but things that are, that are sort of valuable to local communities. They could say, you know, if you want a job, turn up at these places and we'll give you one. And if you don't have the skills for any of the jobs that are available, then we'll give you the skills. We could do that. We really could do that. And and we could um, go back to, to a sort of regime of managing inflation, both through fiscal and monetary policy. So that means both through using the use of interest rates, as we do it now, but also through the use of targeted spending. So we can we can spend, and it's much more effective, really, to to manage um, inflation through spending because you can do it in particular places. You can say, at the moment, we might lift interest rates to soften property prices in Melbourne and Sydney, right, because they're a bit out of control. So they lift interest rates to control property prices. That dampens the economy right across Australia just to manage a problem that's in Melbourne and Sydney. Whereas if you if you take action through fiscal policy, through spending, you can spend it in the places where it's needed and you can pull spending away from places where it's not needed. So it's, there's, there's a lot more nuance in, mm. in that approach to, to both unemployment and to controlling inflation. Absolutely. Um, Warwick, thank you very much for joining us and it's just been absolutely wonderful yeah, to have you. Yeah, it's been great talking with you, Amy. Yeah, um, I, I hope people can and will check this report out. It's on the Per Capita website. Um, it's about the history of um, unemployment policy in Australia and uh, I'm sure they can also check out that op-ed that you've written too which really um, is very accessible and uh, and very compelling. Yeah, much so. shorter read. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. But it, it still is, I mean, I, I, I think the graphs are also very nice in the report. So those interesting in the stats and the graphs to also check that out. Thank you, Warwick, and have a, a lovely day. Thank you, Amy. This is 3RRFM. Uh, the show is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And as promised, we have with us via the phone Dr Jack Pascoe. He's a conservation and research manager at the Conservation Ecology Centre in Cape Otways. Um, and we're going to uh, to talk about a, a, a couple of their projects that are really important um, and, and hopefully get to know some of the, the animals and the species that, um, that we're seeking to preserve and save. So thank you very much, Jack, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So um, 
Well, let's just start with uh, the the particular, I guess, really stark issue, which is um, the managums that are currently um, really depleted and suffering in um, the Capot ways. And that's really down to um, a huge population of koalas, um, those gorgeous animals that you can't possibly think could do any harm, but they are harming um, these managums. Could you share with us what's currently um, happening and for how long has it been happening? Yeah, I guess the first thing to say is that uh, I guess when ecosystems get out of balance and one species becomes too prevalent, um, regardless of how cute they are, you can have problems. So maybe preface it with that. Um, in in 2011, we probably really started to watch um, particularly the managum forest on Cape Otway decline in a, a, a rapid way. Um, and uh, largely it was driven by a, a very overabundant population of koalas, which had been... Uh, uh, introduced to Cape Otway um, back in the 80s with about 70 animals um, from French Island and uh, since then they'd sort of bred exponentially um, uh, it was very very obviously a, a stark thing to watch the forest decline and obviously as the, the food sources ran out there were all sorts of ethical implications for the koalas themselves Indeed. Well, that's the situation um, that we're facing at the moment. Uh, in particular, we're seeing that these koalas need to be um, to be moved, to be, uh, I guess, examined to see whether they're healthy because a lot of these koalas have been starving due to the lack of food now that, that exists. I mean, what are some of the things that um, you and your team have been doing to, to really manage this situation and how has the strategy evolved? Yeah, so I guess we it has changed a bit from our original efforts. We were um, really trying to Describe um, how the uh, the process was was um, taking place. So we did quite a lot of research into things like uh, the chemistry within the the leaves on on gums on Cape Otway to try and understand why um, uh, they were being so heavily um, browsed by koalas in preference to other trees. Um, uh, and, and we were sort of able to answer questions like those. Um, and we also have led a large revegetation effort on Cape Otway to, to try and replace um, uh, uh, some of the, the forest habitat that we've lost. So we've, we've now planted over about 110,000 um, trees across 100 hectares on Cape Otway, some of which will be completely new um, uh, forests, but the rest of it is sort of replacing the canopy that we've, we've lost on Cape Otway. Um, yeah, so I, I guess... Largely, our, our efforts have been to sort of describe uh, the process and how it's going about through our research and then sort of develop a, a really good quality or best practice land restoration project to uh, ensure we have some forests on Cape Otway into the future. Indeed, because these are um, a huge, uh, I guess, important part of the ecosystem in that area, Not let alone being obviously a tourist attraction because they are gorgeous and, um, you know, really old. But it's in the uh, in the habitat, koala habitat rescue um, information that I have, it suggests or says that um, because of this, o- over 70% of the Managum uh, community has been lost over the past 20 years. And um, with these, this planting of seedlings, um, clearly that will make a difference. Um, are they the, the same species as the Managum that already exists? And how, do you, how, what lo- how long do you think that process will be of um, regeneration? 
So uh, we uh, one of one of the things that uh, Eucalyptus um, viminalis or managum it, it grows often on, on sandy country, and it um, unfortunately that means that everything grows very slowly. So we we may not see mature seeds for another uh, sorry mature trees bearing seed for another decade. Um, we hope it's slightly quicker than that, and that will entirely depend on how good the seasons are in that that period of time. Um, we're, we're also planting a diversity of species on Cape Otway. We're not uh, where where we had pure managum and, and have have lost that. We're not uh, replanting entirely with managum simply because uh, we think uh, having very um, dense stands of pure managum is partly what drives the explosion of, of uh, koala numbers in areas where where the managum exists. And, and it, it's a, a process which has been replicated. Um, for, for a long time and a large number of places in both Victoria and South Australia. Um, so we're keen to avoid having pure stands of managum because there are always going to be koalas uh, in the Otways. Um, we may have to manage the numbers in places like Cape Otway where you, you have um, advantageous uh, feed species, but certainly there will always be koalas in and around Cape Otway. And in terms of the managum, I've read that um, it in particular tends to hybridise or, um, you know, evolve uh, and become linked with other species. Is that something that you've seen in the area? It's a, it's a pretty hard species to define in some ways, the managum. Um, we, it, it's sort of, uh, on Cape Otway particularly, there are only really two species of tree that are growing. Uh, or, or eucalypt, I should be more specific, and those, one of them is a stringy bark and the other one, so uh, a messmate stringy bark, and the other one's the managum. And so we don't think there's a, a large deal of hybridisation on Cape Otway. Um, it's certainly not something we think that's playing into the issue. It's, it's really driven by um, that uh, some of the chemical inhibitors within the leaf of managum, which actually stop the koalas... Uh, being easily able to digest the protein in the leaf. So um, they're not particularly effective in, in managums, uh, whereas they, they act quite strongly in other species like uh, the messmate. Mm. And with the management of this project and looking at the animals, the koalas themselves, um, clearly there are many ways that you could manage the situation and I'm sure that um, that is how it's being managed and some of the areas or solutions have been to provide, uh, I guess, contraception to some of the female koalas but also to relocate them and um, and in some cases uh, euthanise those that are sick or dying um, what do you think that this kind of multi-pronged approach has been um, successful so far? I think it's the only approach available to us. Really, it's a it's a species which um, a lot of people care very, very deeply about, and for good reason. Um, and by the same token, it's really important to keep in mind all the other species which rely on habitats that the koala inhabit, and when those. Um, when those habitats crash, like we've seen on Cape Otway and other places in Victoria and South Australia, not only do the koalas suffer, but so do all those other species which rely on, on the woodlands that we're talking about. Um, so, look, yeah, the, the, the government or the department's uh, program currently to sterilise a portion of the, the population at Cape Otway and um, incorporate um, welfare interventions, so um, actually euthanising animals that that uh, are unlikely to survive in the wild anymore and then translocations is probably all that um, the management that can be done and it's 
are likely, whilst there's no control on koala population growth, likely to be our only tools to manage it. Um, and you mentioned there that there are other species uh, that rely on these habitats um, and uh, presumably I'm not so sure that the tiger quolls in the area will be needing to eat managums um, because I read that the tiger quoll is the largest remaining carnivorous marsupial on the Australian mainland. Um, but is it the case that we weren't sure whether there were tiger quolls uh, in this area of the Kapot Ways up until somewhat recently? Yeah, so uh, I guess uh, the tiger quoll is really a, a bit of a flagship species for us because it, it's one of our good news stories um, and, and potentially one of those species that relies on, on the woodland habitats of, of the Otways. Um, there had been no um, proven records in the, uh, in the Otways for about a decade until 2012 when our, um, we had a, a scat submitted to us um, from a, a landholder in Lawn, and we were able to, to prove from, from DNA extracted from that scat, and by scat I mean dropping, droppings, um, uh, so that we had a, 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 a real record of, of tiger quolls again after a decade. And since then we've been able to find them a few times um, on Cape Botway. And, and I guess, uh, yeah, so this all plays in. You know, we, we, we have to keep our, our habitat strong for species other than koalas as well as koalas. And, and some of those um, really character, uh, charismatic species like the twi- tiger quoll will rely on us managing our forests well. Yeah, and was there were some interesting ways that um, the tiger quoll has been identified, and you mentioned the, the scats, um, and and then tying into that, one of your programs is around um, you know, training conservation dogs in the Otways to recognise um, that the tiger quoll droppings as a specific scent or um, them being able to pick it up and tell that that is from a tiger quoll. And there's also then obviously uh, cameras that uh, are at play in that area as well. Um, how successful have you been in identifying the extent of the population in Cape Otways and what are the things you've been doing to, um, I guess, conserve them or protect them? Yeah, so I guess uh, the, the, the records that we have are right across the Otways. Um, one of them is very close to Cape Otway. Um, but really, it, it's been um, difficult to generate a large number of records because as a, as a sort of a top predator, they are naturally at a low abundance and they have very large home ranges. So to generate a, a hell of a lot of data on tiger quolls has historically been very difficult and, and you have agencies putting out um, infrared cameras and researchers like ourselves doing the same um, to try and capture those images but it's got a really low success rate so um, one of our ideas and one of our projects which is quite exciting is to start training um, conservation dogs um, to actually detect scats um, or droppings of, of, of tiger quolls and species like them so for the last four years we've been training um, volunteers and their pets to become conservation detection teams um, and we've had success in actually finding tiger quoll scat in the wild so that will help us um, build our data set of tiger quolls and as, as I mentioned they're a flagship species for us but we're also training our dogs to find other species like potteroos and bandicoots and from uh, to, uh, and the scats that we find from those species will help us um, build a, a, an idea of the population's size and um, abundance um, of, of those species in the Otway so that we have a bit of a baseline to compare it against some of the, uh, the management actions that our, our, our government agencies take 
within the national park and state forests. So an example of that is a, a current um, a program, the Otway Ark, which will basically be um, controlling exotic predators so that hopefully we'll be able to measure an increase in the species, the threatened species that we're really interested in um, as uh, the exotic pre uh, predators are controlled. We hope to see you know, that increase in those populations. And hopefully these methods like uh, engaging conservation dogs will, will help us measure those changes. Indeed. And, I mean, it sounds like um, the Cape Otways uh, Conservation Ecology Centre is really a, a very community-focused organisation as much as a scientific um, organisation. I mean, how much of a community around you getting involved in these projects and getting behind them? So one of, one of the great examples of that is, a, is a, our land restoration program. So um, part, part of our program has been to develop an ecological burning program on Cape Otway. One of the, one of the issues that we've had on Cape Otway is a, a lack of, of, of fire, which has maintained them as open woodlands for a, a very long time. Um, and so we've engaged with community organisations such as the CFA to help us um, reintroduce fire back into the Otways. And that's, we're really starting to see the great benefits of that program for biodiversity, especially um, flora species that we weren't seeing very often. Um, and uh, another way the community have really engaged in our program is through the revegetation efforts. So with our partners at the Southern Otway Land Care Network, and the very <clears throat> large number of volunteers who help us each year to plant trees through events like the Big Otway Tree Plant, which is on the uh, 17th and 18th of June this year, we're, we're actually, uh, the community's really engaged in, uh, in, in making a difference. Absolutely. And I know that uh, people can actually camp there uh, overnight and really um, participate in a substantial way um, in this mass planting effort. I mean, if people are interested in helping out and um, doing this kind of thing, what do they need to do? So the easiest way is to um, visit our website, um, uh, conservationecologycentre.org, where there's a, a page dedicated to the Big Otway tree plant. And uh, as you mentioned, there's free camping at Bimby Park over the, over the weekend and uh, it's generally a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun and I saw that there's also free lasagna um, on offer so that's exciting. Yeah, any, anything to pull the punters I guess, Amy. Indeed. Um, and there's also one um, little thing that I caught up or picked up on which was that there's actually a spotted ale um, which is really to support the, the tiger quoll and also conservation efforts in the area and it's been produced by uh, Prickly Moses which is also based in the Cape Otway area um, which is it seems really great that you could um, buy a beer and also be doing something good for the environment. Yeah, look, it's one of our really exciting projects, the, uh, the partnership with um, Otway Brewing, Prickly Moses. Um, they're producing the Spotted Ale which is a lovely drop. Um, it's basically one way you can you can drink and be doing philanthropy at, uh, <laughs> at the same time, and one of the only ways I know of. Um, basically, the proceeds of that you know, come towards the Conservation Ecology Centre's conservation research program. So, yeah, if you're uh, feeling thirsty over the weekend, I strongly encourage a, a, a case of uh, spotted ale will go a long way. It certainly will, and uh, I know that Geelong are playing this Thursday night, so I'm sure we'll have a few people out with their spotted ales as well as over the weekend. 
Sounds good to me. It does to me too. Uh, thank you so much, Jack, for joining us and sharing um, all the amazing work that you're doing at the Conservation Ecology Centre and best of luck with it. Thanks for having me, Amy. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.